Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Andrew again, November the 4th, 2021. Um, I'm on the West Coast of North America. North America, as most of you know, is a funny kind of place. Uh, we all want to impose our own signature on it. We're all claiming it symbolically or otherwise as our own. I'm probably no better or worse than the rest of you. Earlier today, I had um, Theodore R. Johnson on the show. He has a new book, When the Stars Began to Fall, asking America to live up to its founding principles in terms of treating African-Americans as well as whites. Uh, we've had lots of shows about uh, North America and religion. Uh, I did a show a few months ago uh, about Sir Francis Drake, one of the English pirates who essentially colonized North America. And of course, we have many reminders about the troubles and injustices to the indigenous people of North America caused by the colonialists who always claim the land for their own and impose their own signature. So we've done many shows about religion, indigenous people, African-Americans, um, slavery, of course, in North America and indeed Latin America. But the one subject we haven't dealt with, which is the one we're dealing with today, which is a very original one, are or is the impact of Muslims on the Americas. Uh, it's not something actually I have to admit I gave much thought to until coming across this fascinating new book, Praying to the West, by my guest today, Omar Mualem, who is based in um, Edmonton, Canada, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us. Um, Omar. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you. Uh, you have this wonderful new book, Praying to the West. Uh, it's such an original idea. Uh, although once it's written, I guess it seems inevitable. How did you come <laughs> up with the idea of the book? It's basically, it's a kind of cultural travelogue. Yeah. It's deeply autobiographical, talking about your own experience, your own relationship with Islam. And the book is a, is a travelogue of, of chapters in which you go around the Americas, Canada, United States, Latin America, uh, visiting mosques and thinking and rethinking the Islamic experience in the Americas. How'd you come up with the idea of it? Well, I guess there were two things going on. One is that I myself did not really know much about the history of Muslims in the Americas. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I think it was probably 2016 that I learned that, um, you know, many enslaved Africans were Muslims. And the second that I, I learned this, I was like, yeah, of course, of course, it's, they came from West Africa. That makes uh, absolute sense. Why didn't I know this? Why wasn't, you know, even like, why didn't I know this as a, as a, as a Muslim person or growing up in a Muslim household? But why wasn't this taught in, in history books? It seems like something that should have been repeated um, and known to us you know, throughout the course of our lives, but at least after 9-11, when there was so when there was such a surge in uh, anti-Muslim hate. <clears throat> so there, there was that element and, and it made me just want to know more about what I didn't know. 
And then, of course, at the same time, you have this um, sort of mainstreaming of Islamophobia. You had the rise of Trump. We had a uh, quite you know, bigoted uh, conservative government uh, in Canada around that time led by Stephen Harper that kind of they they stake their entire last um, uh, campaign, what would you know be their, their last uh, term on uh, on on basically these this this dog whistling of uh, this, these dog whistling attempts to vilify Muslim people, um, and then of course you know the rise of ISIS, ISIS inspired attacks, the the more uh, you know right wing populism in democratic societies, and then the tox the toxification I guess of social media, all of that you know converging all at once in 2015, 2016. and it just you know it just seemed like it had become uglier than anything I'd ever seen as far as Islamophobia goes. And maybe if people did know the real history, they would uh, be less fearful of Muslim people because it's hard to be afraid of what you know. And so I hope to give you know a little bit more context about the Muslim presence in the West. Um, and like I said, learn more about it for myself. Yeah, it's a very autobiographical book, um, very much a, a coming of age written um, elegantly, very personally, intimately. In some ways, it, in a funny kind of way, it reminded me of Jeanette Winterson, uh, the English writer, and her coming to terms with her own sexuality uh, and her relationship with her parents. Again, I just came to mind, Jeanette was on the show. Yeah, I know. I, I, I haven't read the book, but I can totally see that. Um, tell me a little bit about your history, Omar, sure. what the narrative of the book and your own experience in visiting yeah. these places taught you about your relations with your family and with your religion. Yeah, well, there are sort of three journeys in this book. One is a very obvious geographical journey um, from uh, Brazil up to the Arctic and visiting different mosques and contemporary, uh, you know, congregations, Muslim congregations today. There's also the historical journey of, of uh, Islam in the West, starting, you know, with in 1492 with the Santa Maria. Uh, but then there's also my personal journey. And, you know, I, <clears throat> I did not actually, you know, I did not identify as a Muslim person before writing this book. I grew up in a Muslim household, but I, you know, I've thought of myself as an atheist since I was probably, I don't know, 18 or so. Um, I think that I'd been moving in that direction probably for a while, but you know, 9-11 definitely accelerated things um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, my my distrust of religion and uh, dogma at that point was, you know, strong enough that I think that 9-11 was sort of the, the linchpin for me to, um, you know, really feel like, uh, really believe, I guess, that uh, religion, uh, organized religion was almost entirely a negative force. Now, that's not something I believe anymore, but I did at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think also, uh, you know, just growing up as a, as a Muslim kid in Northern Alberta, small conservative town, really not a lot of diversity. Tell me I mean, about the, the, the history of your family. Are they sure. uh, first generation, uh, your parents, first generation ca Canadians? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, my dad immigrated in 71, my mom in, uh, 80 and, um, you know, he came when he was 16, didn't he tried high, grade 10 for like a year dropped out he became a dishwasher and worked his way up to own a business where and they did, did very, they did very where well did he, for each where, other where did he emigrate from they immigrated from lebanon um 
Yeah. And there's, you know, they immigrated from uh, to Lebanon or from Lebanon to Alberta, like a lot of Lebanese people. Alberta's got a uh, strong, like large Lebanese community and, and a lot of Lebanese Muslim history as well here. Do you feel you were lucky that your parents emigrated to Canada rather than the United States? It seems hmm. a much more tolerant place, but of course, I'm sure it has, you've had your own experiences of intolerance growing up. Yeah, they were, you know, in, in my memory, they were minor. I think it, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of racism has a lot to do with class as well and colorism. Uh, Lebanese people and, and my family in particular, we have a lot of Turkish roots. Um, we, you know, we can be kind of white passing if not, you know, maybe like, you know, Southern European or Latino. Um, and and also, like I said, my family did very well for themselves and Lebanese people have a, a good you know, social status in, in Alberta. And so I didn't really experience that kind of backlash after 9-11. Really, the backlash that I experienced was in the last few years in sort of the, you know, the era of Trumpism. Um, do I feel lucky that they that they came to Canada instead of the United States? I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, there there are some places in in the United States that are, uh, you know, many times more or seem many times more diverse or uh, tolerant and and welcoming and you know uh, and have those sort of liberal pluralistic values than than some places in in Canada. I think as a whole, yeah, I do feel lucky that they they decided on Canada mostly because of like healthcare and social and social systems, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I think that there is something to the, there is something to the concept that, you know, by and large, um, America is a more racist place toward, um, you know, toward Muslim people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the history of, uh, of American, you know, imperialism and, and, uh, and entanglements with with Muslim majority countries, it's just like it's unavoidable that there's going to be some some clashes there. Um, yeah, and and yeah, um, the Islamic religion, of course, uh, uses like most of the, the great monotheistic faiths, use the idea of the journey centrally, both literally and figuratively. This was a journey for you, uh, yes, in religious terms. You. You seem to have begun as a skeptic at best, and 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 you warm up to the faith on the journey. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I, I warm I warm up to the culture of the faith. I warm up to um, I guess the the concept of the faith, and and maybe more most importantly the the values and ethics of it. Um, I I certainly you know mellowed out. Uh, in in the last decade, uh, from my my militant atheist days, uh, like a lot of you know college age males in the in the mid and late two thousands, I was uh, you know I was definitely one of those um, Dawkins and Hitchens uh, you know zealots. Um, but uh, I I was kind of ambivalent, I think, to Islam and religion for a few years, and then in the course of this book, I think I found a fondness for it. I also uh, discovered, you know, a lot more about myself that, uh, or a lot of Muslim values, I think, within myself that I was brought up with that have always been there, um, and that I actually cherish. 
And, you know, the truth is there, there are a lot of like Muslim, uh, there's a lot of Muslim culture that I've always sort of, um, you know, taken comfort in uh, certain Muslim prayers that for me are more like meditations. But when I need to calm myself or gather my strength, I say them. Um, you know, I take a lot of uh, enjoyment in, in Ramadan and, and uh, Muslim holidays and being with my family and those kinds of celebrations. So I think this book sort of helped me find a Muslim identity that worked for me that was uh, more of like a cultural Islam. We have this concept in, in like mainstream Judaism or Christianity of like cultural Christians or cultural or secular Jews. It doesn't really exist much in mainstream Islam. And what I hope is that this book can be part of a conversation um, that starts to, I guess, develop that kind of uh, that kind of a label identity, because I think it describes a lot of people more than uh, more than I think people understand. Yes, of course, uh, one of the problems with our understanding of Islam, particularly in North America, is it's treated in a monolithic way. Mm -hmm. I've tried to do quite a lot of shows about Islam. We haven't done one for a while. It's the first one we've done for a few months. But we, I had um, Ayan Hersey Ali on the show uh, earlier this year. She's, of course, a great critic of Islam, a very controversial figure. I also had Mustafa Akyol on the show talking about the Islamic Enlightenment. Um, how vibrant do you think the conversation is within Islam about what this religion could and should be and where do you position yourself i don't you know i think that in the i think in the western world it's not very vibrant uh at all and that's that's even within you know muslim communities as as far as like the diversity and um eclecticness goes i don't think that there's a very vibrant uh conversation uh about it you know my my take on it is that islam is um and Muslims are, you know, at face no better or worse than, than any other uh, minority group or any other organized religion. Um, there are, you know, there are people who use it, um, uh, you know, for whom it, it nurtures, you know, a, uh, a benevolence and a dedication to making their communities or society or the world as a whole better. And there are people who seek to exploit it to, um, to gain power. And then there are, there are also people it, uh, who, you know, they completely um, distort it or receive a distorted message and uh, and can cause a lot of, you know, can cause a lot of uh, damage and hurt with that. Um, but I'm not I'm not convinced that it's any more nefarious than any other uh, major religion. It's great stuff, and I'm thrilled that uh, you have this book. It's a really original book, and I, and, and I know it's going to be very successful, uh, Praying to the West, How Muslims Shape the Americas. Uh, we're going to take a break now, but after the break, I want to talk about the travels itself, uh, not just in the United States and Canada, but also in Brazil, in Trinidad, uh, in Mexico. So, uh, Omar, we'll be back in a second after the break. Stay tuned, everyone. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing 
to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with uh, Omar Mualem, the author of Praying to the West. Omar, you begin your first chapter, not actually in the Americas, but in Jerusalem. Why begin there? Well, I think that Jerusalem is um, Jerusalem is a good place to start because this is this is where the uh, so-called you know clash of civilizations uh, narrative I believe starts to begin with the with the Crusades, um, and that is that is sort of seen as a you know uh, uh, or rather that you know the the Christian forces and the papacy saw as a uh, opportunity to retake. Jerusalem from the east and bring it back into the west, but it is uh, you know while it while it sort of like started this uh, off you know this pervasive narrative of uh, east versus west clash of civilizations. Jerusalem is a very important place in Islam. Uh, the first Muslims prayed toward Jerusalem, um, toward uh, Temple Mount. The first Muslims uh, read the Torah. They really were creating what uh, what we would define today as a Western religion for the you know for the uh, Arab people, and so I think that well, that's. Sorry, what do you mean by Western? You mean modern? Well, you know, I mean we when we when we say Western religions, we often mean uh, Abrahamic religions, Judeo-Christian religions. Right. But Islam Islam is in a sense it's basically an offshoot of of both. Um, and so, you know, it is a monotheistic Abrahamic religion, uh, all the same prophets, um, and its roots are like its roots are right there. Um, and so, you know, I think that just to begin dispelling that myth of the clash of civilizations, I wanted to start in Jerusalem uh, to, to sort of sh uh, go to Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the, the mosque that the Crusaders um, uh, took back. Um, and uh, and then you know Muslims took that back as well, and it's been the the focal point of this uh, of the the clash of civilizations wars for for centuries, and so I want to start it there, um, and I also want to start it there because 
uh, you know, during that time when I when I happened to be in Israel and West Bank, uh, I experienced some very and and witnessed some very blatant Islamophobia, and that just kind of it really shook me. And um, you know, I was aware obviously of the conflicts between Israelis and Palestinians. But I wasn't aware until I'd gone there of just like how blatant and in your face that kind of oppression was uh, toward Palestinians and toward people who just looked Muslim, had Muslim names like myself. Um, and so for me, that was sort of a, a glimpse into where Western democracies could go if they continue to accept uh, and mainstream Islamophobia. So that's why that's why I started it there. In a way, it is the you know, it is the beginning of the Western world, even though it is not uh, necessarily the Western hemisphere. Omar, I mentioned earlier that um, uh, earlier today I, I talked with um, uh, Ted Johnson about uh, his new book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, about the African-American experience in, in the United States. You mentioned earlier that um, that you join the dots between the Muslim and the African-American experience. What did, did, did this journey and, and your experiences on the road, did it give you more of a sense of affinity, solidarity with uh, African-Americans in particular? Well, to be honest, I, th I think I've, I've had that, um, you know, most of my life. I mean, whether, whether I have, um, I mean, we're all we're all learning in this moment, and you know whether I've been a, a great ally over the years or not is, I guess, you know, is, is another question. But I've, uh, you know, as as a kid, I looked up toward black Muslims, African American Muslims, and in in a way, they were kind of my only Who Muslim, in particular, Malcolm only Muslim X. role models. Yeah, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, two thirds of a tribe called Quest, uh, Busta Rhymes. I mean, a lot of rappers, right? And I was I was a hip hop kid, so it was always really exciting to hear Islamic references in in hip hop music. Even today, I still get like a little little tinge of excitement, like, oh, that's uh, that's like Islamic scripture. Like, <laughs> I I know that. Um, so yeah, I mean, and you know, when I, when I was a kid. Uh, I was, I was maybe just seven or eight years old when, when Spike Lee's Malcolm X came out. But even at, at that age, I knew that this was, a, this was an amazing movie and an important movie. It meant a lot to me um, to see Denzel Washington, you know, uh, go to go do a pilgrimage in Hajj to say Muslim prayers, to pray in a Muslim way. Like, you know, our, our other pop culture uh, you know, uh, image the other pop culture images of Arab, Middle Eastern, and Muslim people were mostly negative, right? If you think about like True Lies, or uh, The Siege, or Not Without My Daughter, even Back to the Future starts with some crazed, you know, Libyan terrorists, um, you know, that that just sort of appear out of nowhere to get Doc and Marty to the future or the past, I don't really remember how it works. <laughs> but that's like how frivolous that kind of Isla Islamophobic images, uh, those Islamophobic images were in, in Hollywood. So yeah, I mean, to have an icon like Mike Tyson uh, say a Muslim prayer before his fight um, for an impressionable young Muslim kid in Northern Alberta who didn't even have a mosque in his hometown, that meant, that was, that meant a lot for sure. 
I think that with this book, um, with this book, I, I think I, I appreciated more the, not just the, um, the, uh, I guess the connection that they had to their enslaved ancestors and where the inspiration for a lot of Muslim conversions came from. But also I think I started to appreciate, uh, uh and understand anti-blackness in Muslim communities more. I mean, I was aware that it was always there because, um, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, a lot of Arab communities really grapple, um, you know, really have a problem with anti-blackness. It's even in the language, you know, a lot of Arab people still use this word abid to, to describe a black person. Uh, I used to use it when I was a kid. I thought it was just like, I, I don't know, like the Arabic version of Negro. It actually means slave, right? So like, that's how intertwined those ideas are. Um, so I think this book kind of opened my eyes up to that a little bit more. And it was a conversation that I had throughout with, uh, with the subjects of, of the book. Uh, one of the things I like about the book, it's not just uh, America, US centric, you, 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 you treat North and South America as yeah. a, a sort of as a, as a, as a, as your foundation for, for this travel, you go to Baja, uh, sorry, Salvador in, in Bahia, Bahia in Brazil. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, very envious. I haven't been there. I've spent some time. Oh, in it's Brazil. an amazing. What, what did you find city. there? What did you learn in Brazil about the Muslim experience in in America? I mean, I went to Salvador because uh, it has a, a really important Muslim history. So Salvador is one of the biggest cities in uh, in Brazil, and because of where it's situated on the sort of the north eastern uh, tip of of the country, it's it's almost the closest point to Africa. So it, it's actually home of the first slave market in the West. Um, and it had a lot of Muslim, uh, Muslim enslaved people just, you know, by by fluke chances of, of the, 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 I guess, the trade routes of certain times that also corresponded with wars in Africa that ended up, uh, you know, that resulted in, in a lot of uh, Muslim, Muslim people being enslaved. And so if you, if you rewind now to the early 1800s in, in Salvador, there were several, uh, you know, there were several waves of enslaved Muslim Africans from different ethnicities. Um, to the point where they became, it, it was not a, uh, it was a, it was a visible minority faith in Salvador. Brazil has a, barely has a Muslim population anyway. I mean, they are very much an invisible, uh, an invisible minority group there. But at that time, there were mosques. Uh, there were ad hoc mosques, several of them. There were people who dressed uh, in Muslim garb, some of them freed. There were faith leaders, Islamic scholars, um, some of them freed, some of them enslaved. And so Islam was very, very visible at that time. Now, why, you know, why does that richness, uh, you know, where did the richness of that religion go, or that religious culture go? Why didn't it have any continuity? A lot of other black religions did have continuity. A lot of other black cultures, uh, cultural customs did. Well, now you have to go to 1835, the Malay Revolt in Salvador, which was this, basically, it was a jihad. Not the kind of jihad that we think of today with all the negative connotations that are given to it both by Western and Eastern people, um, but jihad as in that they, you know, they fought a war based on Islamic laws of warfare to, uh, you know, to, 
they used those laws to justify an uprising against their slave masters. And we're talking about 600 people, um, mostly Muslim, organizing a rebellion in 1835, which today would be about 20,000 Salvadorians. Now, obviously, it was not successful, but it was a hell of an uprising that lasted an entire day, um, had many battlefronts, um, and uh, it scared the bejesus out of Brazilians. And that's when they started to really clamp down on Islam. And that's when, uh, look, I mean, uh, I guess expressing your your Muslim or non-Christian culture could be punishable before that, but it was kind of arbitrary. It was really at the whims of the slave masters and the people you know, who were affronted. But that's when you start to see a real campaign to, to eliminate, annihilate Islamic culture um, to the point where there is no continuity of that religion in the, you know, in the generations following that. They really saw, the Catholics really saw Islam as a threat, as competition to Catholic he uh, hegemony um, in a way that they did not see uh, other black religions of that time. So I went to, like, I went to Brazil. You also to went to Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, know. yeah. I went to Brazil to capture that history, but also to see how that history is inspiring people today to embrace Islam. I went to Trinidad and Tobago. It has a similar history with enslaved Muslim people, but it also has a lot of, uh, it has a history with indentured, uh, indentured Indians, South Asians, um, many of whom were Muslim who came uh, after slavery was abolished by the British uh, colonies. And they came basically to fill in that role. And, you know, to an extent, they were treated like enslaved people. Um, but what's interesting is that they they had a lot more religious freedoms. And also their, uh, they came from many different branches of Islam. And so they gradually syncretized a Islamic system or Islamic practice that uh, became quite uniquely Indo-Muslim, you know, Caribbean. Um, and they even had their own holiday that's quite obscure now. But, uh, you know, I went to Trinidad to try not just trace that history, but also see how attempts to purify their Islam has led to what is now a bit of a crisis of, of uh, radicalism. So Trinidad had this coup in 1990, a, a Muslim coup, and people think of that as sort of like the, the symbol of, of radicalism in the Caribbean. But actually that, that was much more of, a of like a political coup. The issue I'm talking about is that um, the, the purification or the attempts to purify it has uh, basically created a uh, almost like a mainstreaming of ultra-Orthodox views. And so a lot of uh, Muslim Trinidadians have, uh, you know, they they are maybe what you would describe as Wahhabi. This is the sort of like, you know, stricter, harsher Sunni Islam of Saudi Arabia. They have very black and white views. And ISIS recruiters preyed on that. You know, being an ultra-Orthodox person doesn't make you a violent extremist, but it is sort of like a primer. And so during the sort of peak of, of the Islamic State, there were as many as 250 Trinidadians who'd gone off uh, to, to fight or to live in the Islamic State. To put that in perspective, that's more than Canada and America combined. And that's about one in, in 450 Muslim people in Trinidad because it's an island of, uh, of one million people.
our right, country of 1.4. Because on we're going to have a lot of time left. Let's move on to your experiences in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to Chicago, to yeah. Moscow. Actually, this, this, this feature is Moscow uh, number two, but you actually went to Moscow number one. Uh, you go to the Islamic Center uh, in, uh, in, in Dearborn, mm -hmm. uh, in Michigan. Um, you you go to the first uh, the oldest mosque in the United States in, in well North it's, it's a bit of a misnomer it's called the first mosque in America but it's actually not it's about like the third or fourth okay well it's pretty old <laughs> but uh, that's the you, name they gave right. it so you go to the Islamic Society of Greater Houston um, and you even go to the Imam Center in uh, in LA are there some in, in brief terms are there some generalizations you can make about your experiences uh in 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 the united states itself not really and i think that's that's the most illuminating thing is that you know any any assumptions that i made about um muslim practices how they are experiencing their american identity um you know any assumptions i made about islamophobia are really region to region and and place to place um, in Chicago, there is a, uh, you know, there's a black Muslim movement. It's actually the first American uh, Muslim movement native to America called the Moore Science Temple. A lot of them are, are very conservative, um, big, you know, they were big supporters of Trump. And um, so, you know, that just goes to show you that you can't make, you know, you can't make any assumptions um, about that. But I think that's, you know, that's something that I want people to realize is just how diverse uh, Islam is, and especially in, in the West, you know, what pe people might find it curious, like why write a book about Muslims in, a, in, in the West, because it's such a small, proportionally, it's such a small demographic, right? We're talking maybe 10 million people across the entire hemisphere. But if you go to a city like Houston, New York, Toronto, Chicago, Vancouver, like any major city, you're going to find, you know, 20, 50, 100 mosques belonging to many, many, many different uh, denominations, ethnicities. And you will get a snapshot of just how diverse Islam is in these American cities. And you won't you won't get that in, in an Asian or African city. And you might not get that in a lot of European cities as well, because uh, like Isla Muslim immigration to Europe is is comparatively you know, newer than it is to to the Americas. In terms of geographical diversity, of course, you began in Salvador in, in, in Brazil in a fairly tropical, I guess, geography. Mm -hmm. uh, and you make your way to the town of Inovic. Yes. Uh, for uh, to see the Midnight Sun Mosque, which That's right. I have to admit again, very envious. I'd love to do this. Uh, what was that experience like? A visually I loved dramatic. It. Yeah, the Midnight Sun Mosque was, uh, I mean, that that I think, that was actually my first trip. It was kind of by accident. I just happened to be on assignment there and I just stumbled upon it. And uh, that's when I realized that I need to, you know, I need to write this book through mosques, that mosques are the the best focal point to understanding both the, the, the contemporary and historical life of Muslim communities. Uh, because you know, each every mosque tells us tells a story, and that one tells a fantastic story about a community of mostly refugees, mostly men 
who come up there for economic opportunities, often support their families living in southern Canadian cities because it's so expensive there, um, and have done pretty well for themselves. Well enough that they, you know, after they established this mosque, uh, they wanted to give something back to this community, this predominantly indigenous community with, you know, high rates of, uh, of unemployment and, and a lot of social strife. And what they ended up doing is right next to the mosque. Um, you can't see it in this picture because uh, this uh, you'll you'll see it because uh, uh, it came just a little bit later. They built a uh, a food bank, what they call the Arctic Food Bank, and it is uh, controlled by the same Islamic organization that controls the mosque. And incredibly, this community in Inuvik didn't have that, and it was so desperately needed. And they ship about a hundred thousand dollars worth of food to the food bank per year. They also uh, you know, dole out uh, school supplies, backpacks to kids who badly need it. It's become a hugely important piece of infrastructure to this town. Um, and that was something that a, uh, like I said, a mostly refugee Muslim community of taxi drivers and, and uh, you know, very like humble people, um, that's something that they built Good stuff, Omar. Praying to the West. Uh, actually, the subtitle might be Every Mosque Tells a Story. You yeah. definitely tell some wonderful stories about Thank a, you. a variety, a very rich variety, a tapestry of mosques in and the Muslim, the Islamic experience in the Americas, not just the United States and Canada, but also Brazil uh, and the Caribbean and in Mexico. So congratulations, Omar, on the book. Thank you. Um, I think it's going to be a big hit. I'd love to see it. I know you just made a, a movie, uh, Digging in the Dirt. I think it has, uh, this, this book also has a very strong visual quality. I hope it'll get made into a TV show or movie. What else should people be reading, Omar, or perhaps watching in these strange times? I know you're in Edmonton, Canada, where you live at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading two books. I like to read a, a nonfiction and fiction book at a time. So right now, on the nonfiction I'm reading... Uh, Kamal Al-Soleili's book, Return, uh, Why We Go Back to Where We Came From. And it's all about the why sort of... Why we can't go back, right? Why we, why we go back to where oh, we okay. came from. Yes. Uh, it's, it's about the... It's really... It's, a, it's a, um, also a travelogue, but a bit of a philosophical book on the sort of romantic uh, pull that, uh, you know, immigrants or expats always feel uh, to, to go back to their homeland. Um, why we often romanticize it, even after creating a, a life entirely somewhere else. Um, and the other book that I'm reading is by Hala Alian, and it's called The Arsonist City. And it is a fantastic saga about a American, Arab-American family uh, going back to Beirut to sell their home. And uh, and all that ensues there. Uh, Hala Alian is just a wonderful, incredibly know, gifted you know writer. Do you know them? Uh, I yeah, I mean, I guess uh, personally, I've I've uh, I've only met her virtually, but uh, I run a virtual school called Pandemic University, and she's taught some classes. Yeah, uh, I saw there. that this Pandemic University. Maybe that might be a subject of another conversation. Omar, <laughs> maybe you can introduce me as well to her. I'd love to have her on the show. Uh, Omar uh, Mualem, uh, real honor having you on the show. Congratulations again on on uh, on the book. Uh, on the movie as well, but uh, the book, Praying uh, to the West, How Muslims Shape the Americas is out. It's really interesting, very original. 
anyone who doesn't like my like most of us who don't know much about the Muslim experience in the Americas will learn a lot from it. So congratulations on the book. And uh, I know you're going to do a lot of interesting projects in the future. So I'll look forward to having you on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much, Omar. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.